Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. We're glad you guys are here this morning and the Lord's brought you here. We've been in a series for, um, I don't know, a few months now uh, called Presence, uh, What Happens When God Shows Up, and just looking at what the Bible says about God being with us, and I think that is something that we think about a lot, like what does it look like for God to be with us? What should we expect if God is with us? What should that feel like? Um, Are we experiencing God's presence the way uh, that we're supposed to? And so we've looked at a bunch of Old Testament stories. We looked at Adam and Eve, and we looked at Cain and Abel, and Noah, and Abraham, and Jacob, and Joseph, as well as a couple of, um, of stories from families in our church that went through times that were difficult, where they experienced the presence of the Lord. And in all that, I think we've established biblically, God is present. He's present with us. He's present at all times. He's in control of all things. I've been thinking a lot this week about how um, I think a lot of times I, like God's presence or absence to me, it seems dependent upon whether my circumstances are good or bad. And that, like God's been just blowing that up in my mind over the past month or two and how I feel. And our circumstances and our emotions are bad gauges, bad indicators of God's presence or absence. He's, he's with us. Uh, today, I want to lean into, like, um, okay, he's with us, but does his presence matter? Does his presence matter in my life on a day-to-day basis? And that's a hard question because we're in church, uh, and so the correct answer to that question is yes, God's presence matters, you know, uh, but it doesn't always feel like um, it matters. And so last week, uh, Matt and Ashley Noble were up here, shared their story. Do yourself a favor if you missed that, um, search Oak City Church on YouTube and Oak City Church Raleigh and, and uh, watch that story because it was incredible. Um, but Matt said a bunch of things that stuck with me, um, but one of them in particular. So his story is he... He was born with a heart defect, um, and they repaired that, but over, over a period of time, like, that led to a heart transplant when he was um, 40 years old. And he talked about how in the days and weeks and months and years leading up to that surgery, he had to depend on God on a, like, a day-to-day, really moment-by-moment basis, and it was obvious. And at some periods, like, literally moment-by-moment, just to make it to the next moment, and, um, and he said after getting a heart transplant, there was a little bit of a letdown. He said if, if the, you know, people told you the goal of your life is to climb Mount Everest, and you knew that for 40 years, and then you climbed Mount Everest, and then you're like, what do I do now? Um, and that he, he ended up missing that day-by-day, moment-by-moment dependent, dependence on the Lord um, because he, he, got, he got through that, and he made the comment a few times that he could, he could now go days without thinking about God and without having to depend on God in the same way that he was forced to in the situation he was in um, for most of his life. And said, in hindsight, he said, I feel like I was the lucky one, which is insane if, when you listen to his story, that he feels like he was the lucky one because he had to learn how to depend on God um, on a moment-by-moment basis. Uh, And I think a lot of us relate to that 
Like we know God's present with, it, present with us, but, but we could probably go a few days without really thinking about God or depending on God. You know, like I'm the pastor, so I have to write a sermon. I definitely have to think about God. Do I have to depend on God even to do that? And I ought to. <laughs> and I think most weeks I do. But some weeks I don't. You know what I mean? Like, and so does, the, does God's presence uh, matter to us on a day-to-day basis? And, and to get into that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to look at the character of Moses in the Bible um, and start with one of the most epic experiences of God's presence in history, which is the story of the burning bush. So I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read the passage uh, for the morning that I'm going to start with. And, um, and we do this as a church to acknowledge that, that God's words mean more than our words and that we're grateful that God has given us his word. So I'm going to read this, say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 3, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And Moses, oh, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. Let me review Moses for a second. What I'm going to do this morning is like a lot of high-level stuff and zoom in on one, this little interaction and just one part of it. But just to recap where we are with Moses, Abraham is the father of the Israelite nation. And so God comes to Abraham and we went through that story and says, hey, I got a plan And it starts with you. I'm going to make you a great nation, give you a land. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And he's talking ultimately about Jesus. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And John preached about Jacob, and the promise went through Jacob. And then Joseph, a few weeks ago, we talked about Joseph. And all that Joseph went through served to get the Israelites down to Egypt um, for a period of time that lasted about 400 years. And it started out like well, and it ended badly. Uh, they ended up being slaves to the Egyptians um, for a period of time. And when Mo- and Moses is born into that slavery, he's born into a time when Pharaoh has decided there are too many of these Israelites, and so I need to I need to make sure they don't overtake us and and get rid of some. And so he's committing a genocide. He's killing the Israelite boys, the infant boys. He's having them killed. And um, Moses' mom has Moses, and um, she sees him, and this is what the Bible says, she, see, she saw that he was good, and, uh, and then she puts him in a basket and puts him in the Nile. Now, this is a little, I'm going to do some Bible geekery this morning because this thing is all tied together. When it says that she saw that he was good, that's an allusion back to Genesis chapter 3. When she puts him in a basket, that word for basket in Hebrew is tevah. It's only used one other time in the Bible, and it's Noah's Ark. And Noah's Ark is this tevah that's covered with bitumen and pitch, 
And this basket that Moses is put into is also covered with pitch and put in the waters. And salvation is provided through the waters. And it's a it's definite picture of tying these two things together. And so Moses' mom puts him into the basket and, and floats him down the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughter sees him and decides that she wants to have mercy on this kid. And Miriam, his sister, is right there and says, well, hey, I know... Uh, a Hebrew woman that could nurse him for you. And so she takes him back to his mom and God in his providence ordains that. And then Pharaoh's daughter ends up taking him at a certain age and raises him in Pharaoh's household. And so he's raised as an Egyptian and at the age of 40 uh, sees the oppression of his people. And he knows he's an Israelite. We're not told how he knows that exactly, but he knows he's an Israelite, sees the, the oppression of his people and decides to do something about it. And so he sees um, an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave, and it says he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand and went out the next day. And behold, two Hebrews, Israelites, were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, justice. Moses is concerned with justice. Why do you strike your companion? And the man answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So that did not work out the way Moses thought it was going to, doing the right thing. And he ends up losing everything and flees and goes out into the desert, into the land of Midian. Just a tiny, don't worry about this if you don't care, but just a tiny more bit of Bible geekery. This is an allusion to Cain and Abel, where Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? Moses said, I am my brother's keeper. And he ends up killing someone and ends up going into exile, similar to the way that Cain does. It's all tied together. Uh, And he's been in Midian ever since. So 40 years growing up in Egypt, and now 40 years years in Midian. He married, um, he had a son, he lived a lifetime, and... And in the midst of that, God comes to him in this burning bush. Um, Which one more dose of Bible geekery is probably an allusion to the flaming sword that God places outside the Garden of Eden at the end of Genesis 3. Uh, And Moses turns aside, and when, when God reveals himself to him, it says he is afraid to look at the Lord, which is reverence, like Moses is reverent. Now, in the scope of a series on presence, has God been present with Moses in the desert? Has God been present with Moses in the desert? I would say yes. He was present with Jacob in his exile. He was present with Joseph when Joseph was in um, a slave. And then when he was in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. And so God was present with Moses in the desert. Has Moses felt the presence of God in the desert? I'm thinking... Probably not. And so God continues uh, and says to him, out of the burning bush, now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If I'm Moses, I have a lot of things running through my head at this point. One of them is, like, I didn't expect that. Like, that's a little out of the blue after 40 years. Another one is, uh, God, I tried that once 40 years ago. It didn't work out well. And frankly, I've moved on. (laughs) 
A third one is probably, hey, where were you 40 years ago when I tried that? Like, why didn't you show up then? Um, because that didn't work out the way that it was supposed to. Um, and a fourth thing, I think, is that this is a little bit like going to somebody that hasn't exercised in 10 years and saying, you want to run a marathon next weekend? Uh, because 40 years in the desert is a long time. And Moses responds to him and says, uh, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out to Egypt? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So this is where I'm going to zoom in and just stay on this part of the interaction in all the story of the Exodus. Just sit here for a while, and then I'm going to zoom out of it in a few minutes. But this who am I question um, and how God responds to it is enormous. Um, maybe for us, A or the key question in discerning like our relationship to the presence of God in our own lives is this who am I question and what we do with the who am I question. Uh, because God's answered it for us, but I think often we're not satisfied with the answer that he's given. It's not enough. And so we want to be something more than the who am I that God gives us. Uh, and he's, he's going to repeatedly say, I made you and I redeemed you. And that's who you are. One that's made by God and redeemed by God. That's who you are and what you need to know. But that who am I question like, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is the who am I question in our culture right now? 10. 50. It is the question culturally, and maybe every culture for all time, um, I would argue that we, we've taken it to a different level in terms of expressive individualism. Like, we're desperate, and we can get, we, it's just natural to get sucked into trying to figure out that question to a degree that we don't need to because God's already answered it. And to the extent that we can't leave it aside, like our experience of the presence of God is interrupted. I was thinking this week about, um, and I think about this a lot, but the, all of the, the energy that is expended on the gender ideology conversation right now and... Um, and how it's related to this who am I question. A couple years ago, I saw these surveys, and they did a, like a general, and it was Gallup, it was a big survey group that surveyed the general population and asked them, what percentage of people do you think experience, I don't know what language they use, this is probably five years ago, and so the answer might be a little bit different now, but like some type of transgender experience or gender dysmorphia type of experience. And they also asked, what percentage of people do you think are, are gay or experience same-sex type attraction? And people, when they answer that, what percentage of people in our population deal with it? And so you can answer that in your own mind, what percentage of people. People answered like, oh, probably like 25% of people experience those, those things. And um, I asked my kids this. This is what I did. We were driving in the car, and I I asked them what they thought, and they answered something along that 20, 25%. In reality, 
0.5% of the population experiences some type of gender dysmorphia, transgender experience, maybe 3% experiences same-sex attraction, 1% identifies as, as bisexual. And I would ask my kids is, why do you think it's taking up so much energy in our culture? And let me, for just a second, clarify when it comes to the transgender stuff. I think gender dysmorphia is a real thing. I bet people have experienced it forever because we are broken people in need of rescue. Um, I think what we're doing right now and um, you know, they say that your brain isn't completely, like, it rewires itself in adolescence and isn't completely done until your early 20s, but we're letting kids make decisions that they can't reverse, and I think it's, I think it's horrible, honestly. Like, and, but I think the, the, the reason it's so dominant in our culture is because we're so desperate to answer this who am I question, and we're more than that. We're desperate for the freedom to say, I am whoever I want to be, and you better not get in the way of me answering that question however I want to answer it. Uh, and it's, we're coached into, this is the most important question that you answer, and if you don't answer it well, then you're not worth anything. Um, it's a huge question. I think for, for Moses, the who am I question is probably leans into a who was I question, because Moses, as a, not even young, he was 40, you know, <laughs> uh, was ambitious. He was in the household of Pharaoh. He was powerful. He saw what was being done to his own people. He was, he was righteous, like he had a sense of justice. He was willing to sacrifice. He was generous to give up the things that he had. He was courageous, like all of these things. That's who Moses was, you know? Even when he got to the desert, he says he went to a well. Well, at the well, he sees his wife and her sisters watering um, her father's sheep, and some shepherds come up and hassle him, and Moses stands up for him like total strangers, and uh, because that's who Moses is. Um, but he's been tending sheep in the desert for 40 years, 40 years of tending sheep in the desert. He didn't go to the desert to do some Navy SEAL training so he could go back to Egypt and finish the job, you know? Like, he tried the whole rescuing Israel from their oppressors thing. He failed. That ship has sailed, and he's had 40 years tending sheep to think about it. That is way too much time on your hands to think about something like that. And I don't know who uh, he thought he would be or who he thinks he is at this point, but God coming back in with that, like, hey, let's go do this, to me would be problematic for Moses. Um, I was on sabbatical this summer I mentioned this in one sermon, I think, since I've been back, but um, with a couple weeks left in sabbatical, I went out to the mountains and just started processing with God, come, just re-entering things, and I ended up in this passage where God has Elijah out in the desert, the prophet Elijah, and says to Elijah, in kind of a sabbatical-y type moment, what are you, what are you doing here? And that is, a, that is a midlife crisis waiting to happen for a 51-year-old male. Like, what are you doing here? In life, what are you doing here? And I feel like that's a Moses where Moses is in this moment. Um, the other day, I was uh, prepping the sermon, and there is a stage in sermon preparation that's referred to as beat your head against the wall. Every sermon has that stage in it. And, um, and so I was in it. That's where you're most likely to get distracted and off track. And I got off track on LinkedIn, of all things. That's how desperate I was to be off track. And, uh, and I just started scrolling down what people are doing, and I thought, who am I? Like, I like what I'm doing, but like, who am I? Social media baits us into the who am I question at all times. 
Like the question is, is just a huge, huge question. And um, there's another like dynamic with Moses where he's been away from his people for 40 years. He, his father-in-law is, the, is a priest in Midian, so I don't think that's a Hebrew thing. Uh, he, you find out in a, in a few scenes that he hasn't circumcised his son, which is the sign of the covenant, which is like a, a big deal. And God gets mad at him, and he and his wife get in a fight about it. And, um, but he's kind of lapsed, it seems like, in his practice of his faith. You know, so when it comes to presence, but then he's reverent when God shows up in this direct way. He, he's afraid to look at God, so he's reverent, but he's, I don't think he's necessarily day-by-day day practicing. And so this, I, I think he wonders, does it matter that God is present? Like, he knows it's true, but he's not sure. Like, when Matt said, I can go days without thinking about God, I think Moses fits into that category, and we get it. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, if Moses were to ask us that question or we were to ask each other that question, I think we would respond by like saying, don't sell yourself short, Moses. Hey, it's been a rough 40 years. You caught a rough break back then. You've got what it takes. I believe in you. Here's a participation trophy for your time in the desert. Let's get going, you know? I think that's what we would do, kind of pump him up, you know? Here's what God does. He said, but I will be with you. He blows off the question completely. Who am I, God? Doesn't matter. You know what matters? I will be with you. And this will be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. Who am I is not nearly as important a question as we think it is. Who is God and what is God up to are much more important questions. Who, who are we? We've been created by God. We're made in the image of God. We have inherent dignity. Uh, we have great potential. He's given us great purpose. He's given us all those things. But we're screwed up, and we're marred by sin, and we got problems that we in no way, shape, or form can fix. And so we're in need of redemption, and God's our Redeemer. And we have been redeemed by the work of Christ on our behalf. We're created by God. We're redeemed by God. That's what we need to know about ourselves. That's enough. That's enough. But we spend too much time, like, navel-gazing, which was a real thing. This is another thing that happens when you prep sermons. Like, what does that mean? The, the Greeks used to literally stare at their navels, and that's how they meditated. Uh, we spend too much time navel-gazing on Facebook or Instagram or whatever your navel-gazing mechanism of choice is, and worried about who I am. When God's told us what we need, and our focus ought to be on who he is. I was with some pastors the other morning, and um, doing like a reflective thing, and one of the places that the guy went was um, the sermon, sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And the first one is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so he read it in... Um, like a more common translation. Then he read it in the message, which was Eugene Peterson's translation. And Eugene Peterson translates that. You were blessed when you were at the end of your rope. 
with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope with less of you and more of God and his rule. I would argue that Moses, 40 years in the desert, when it comes to his relationship with what's going on in Egypt, was at the end of his rope and ready for there to be much less of him and much more of God and his rule. And I think God will take as long as he needs and do whatever it takes to get you and I to that place. And, I th- and this is what I was thinking about Friday morning with these pastors. Like, that word blessed means fully satisfied. Um, so fully satisfied are you when you were at the end of your rope? Nope. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't think it's going to feel good when you get there. But it's absolutely where God needs us to go. Uh, so that little interaction with Moses, who am I, God? Doesn't matter. I'll be with you. You've got what you need to know about who you are. I'll be with you is what you need to know and what you need to focus on. And Moses ends up saying, okay, right. It's not about me. It's about you. But if I go back there and they ask me about you, what should I tell them? Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I am literally means he is, and he will continue to be. It is the one who is. And God has a bunch of names in the Old Testament uh, when, the, when, the, when the language, in, particularly in these passages, says the Lord God, Lord is Yahweh, that's this word, and God is Elohim. Elohim is like the, the title God, and um, Yahweh is like the name, the personal name by which they would know him. Uh, and in the I am is like saying, um, and we ask this question, people are asking this question all the time, is there something before all the other things? Like, when people are just asking the question, does God exist? And God describes himself as that. I am the thing that always has been and is right now and is with you. When Jesus is arguing with uh, some religious leaders, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that they would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, Jesus. And you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he was saying. Like, he is God. He is the I am. He is Yahweh. And they picked up thrones to sto- stones to throw at him uh, because they knew what he was doing. So God says, this is the answer. I'm, I am, and I'm with you, and I'm here now, and I've been here. Now, let's stop there and just zoom out to the rest of the story. And Moses is going to go, and he's going to meet Aaron and he's going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And there's going to be the 10 plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. And they end up back in the desert at this mountain. And, and so let me just make a few points about all that. God's primary goal in the Exodus story is that people know who he is. Um, this I will be with you is the thing. And so I'm going to read a bunch of verses quickly. Don't worry about it. The point is the repetition of it. So 
they go to Pharaoh, and uh, Pharaoh says, okay, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. He's going to wish he hadn't said that in a couple chapters. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Um, 6-7, I take you to buy me people, I'll be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them. Verse 17, by this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that's in my hand, I'll strike the water that is in the Nile. 8, 10, um, you may, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord. 9, 14, so that you might know there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 29, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10, 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. Again and again and again and again. That's what he wants, is for us to know who he is. The end of that story, Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And that's not a power play. God is not insecure. Uh, God knows this, Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and instruction. That the most important question we can ask isn't who am I? It's who is he? And that's where wisdom starts. But, but the foolish are stuck on the who am I question. Uh, as long as we are more concerned with our own name than the name of the Lord, like just things aren't going to go the way that they're supposed to. Second thing, God will take as long as he needs and do whatever it takes to give us this knowledge of who he is. And so the last couple weeks of this series, uh, we had the story of Jacob. Well, the story of Abraham. Man, Abraham's story took forever. He makes that promise, and it's 25 years until he gets a kid, and then 13 years after that, God asked for the kid back. Uh, Jacob's story, where John preached that and said, it's like an acorn. It has this hard shell, these survival mechanisms, these identities that we come up with, and God's going to break through those. And he ends up in a foreign land for 20-something years, like seven years for his, the wife that he wants, sister, and then another seven years for his wife, and then just he's there for a long time, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, God meets him, and he's ready, you know, and, and realizes, I didn't need the things that I stole from my brother. I can give him back, and I know who I am in the Lord, and God takes forever to get there. Joseph's story, years and years and years of pain for him to get to the point where he's so confident. Uh, you meant it for evil, but God was in charge the entire time, and he meant the whole thing for good, and it took years to get to that place. Last week, uh, again, Matt Noble, one of the things that he said, he said it on Sunday morning, he said it a few times when we were talking, that after those years and years of crisis and suffering and like God showing up, that he knows God will be faithful the same way that he knows gravity is real. And he knows it. And he ended up saying, like, I feel like I'm the lucky one for having gone through all that because I know that. But that took a long, long time to get. Uh, God is not concerned with being efficient. Even in this story of the Exodus, like, God's going to rescue them from from Egypt, but there was a quicker way to do that. I don't think God is so concerned with getting the thing done as he's concerned that we know that he's with us in the getting done of the thing. And so um, 
with Joseph and, and um, saving the people of Israel from a famine and going to, to being a slave and being a prisoner and all the other stuff that he went through with his brothers, I've thought a bunch of times, like, God could have saved him from a famine by sending some rain. You know, there was a quicker way to do that than what he did. And God's not worried about being efficient. Uh, I don't know what is going on in your life that seems to be taking one heck of a long time for God to do it, but that's how he does it. And he's, he's concerned in that, that we get to know who he is um, in the process of it. And then as long as our primary preoccupation is, know, is knowing who we are, um, I think we're gonna, that's going to get in the way of us getting to know him very well. Um, that who am I question and the fact that God didn't answer it for Moses really matters. Uh, he's our creator. He's our redeemer. And that's how we, um, that's how we know him. So I'm going to, just in a few things that I think this takes me to and what we should do. And one of them is this. Ask yourself, you should ask the question, who is God, more than you ask, who am I? And ask yourself right now, do I ask the question, who is God, more than I ask the question, who am I? Or do I ask the question, who am I, more than I ask the question, who is God? And I'm pretty sure for myself, I ask the question, who am I, more than I ask the question, who is God? And that's a problem. That's a problem. Um, here's another thing I would do. Know that we meet God as the one who rescues God is going to describe himself in Scripture after this. He'll, he'll always remind them, the Israelites, he is the one that redeemed them from Egypt. And that's all metaphorical for redeeming us from our sin. We know him as a redeemer of ourselves. You know, we are the ones that, um, this is a way of articulating the gospel where someone said that the, that the gospel is this, that you are more sinful than you ever imagined, but more loved than you ever dared hope. And so as you grow in your relationship with Christ, you come to understand the depth of your problem in greater, to greater degrees and your need for a rescue. And so we, we know him in that way. Um, and that can be spiritually, it can be physically, it can be emotionally, but we know him as the one who rescues. And so when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, like we're always meeting him in our need to be delivered from our sins. And, we, and that happens in a moment of salvation where we accept what Christ has done for us. But it continues to happen as we realize um, how he is making us more like him. And we meet him in the midst of that. There are so many basic things that he told us to do. Like, I need him to know how to love my neighbor. <laughs> I need him to know how to love uh, my wife, to love my kids, to work hard the labor that he's called me into. They're basic things where we just need him to do the basic things, and, and we meet him in those places as a rescuer. And we meet him as a rescuer to the people around us because he calls us into that. And that's what he's doing to Moses in the moment, right? I want you to be a part of the deliverance of other people, and he's called us to that, to go and make disciples, and we meet him in that. And if we're not concerned about that, and we're not obedient in that, then we're not going to meet him in the way that we are intended to meet him. He wants to redeem the people around us and to use us uh, to be a part of that. And that's where we think, well, who am I to go tell them about you? I don't know the answers and I don't know whatever. And he's like, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Just be there. 
So we meet him as a redeemer. And so then I would say, I'd say this, steadily pursue Jesus. Um, when it comes to this question of presence, steadily pursue Jesus and be prepared for it to take him a long time to get the things done in you that he wants to get done. Be prepared to be a boring Christian, and that's okay. Uh, there was a book a few years ago um, written by a guy named David Platt called Radical. It's a great book. Um, and we are called to do radical things. Um, some of the basic things that we're called to do are radical, but sometimes we're called to do really radical things. Uh, and I, I feel like I've done that. I've quit my job to go into ministry and quit a ministry to start a church and moved into a bad part of town with another family and pursued adoption because God told me to. Like, but most of the Christian life is pretty boring. And we seek God on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, and that's how he wants it. Um, read your Bible. The reason I, I did the Bible geekery things in the beginning of the message isn't to, for Bible trivia purposes, you know? Um, it's not to show that I did my homework. It's because this thing is so well tied together, it is brilliant. It is brilliant. And the more you read it, the more brilliant it gets. And the more brilliant it gets, the more brilliant you realize God is. But you only get that when you make a decision to pursue him through his word on like a day-to-day basis. And we want God to talk to us in the spectacular. We should be thankful that God doesn't talk to us more often in the spectacular. Um, Does that make sense? Like we want God to show up at the foot of the bed every night and kind of tell us what to do tomorrow. But he gives us what we need. And it can be dangerous when people say, the Lord told me. Um, I was listening to a podcast last weekend about a church in Seattle that fell apart in the last eight to 10 years um, because the guy that was leading it ended up, I don't know, seemingly becoming a power hungry, whatever. And he, this podcast was him, he had agreed to like a church discipline restoration type process that the elders of the church had called him into but then after he agreed to it, he said he and his wife were in their house, in separate ends of the house, and both heard from the Lord that God had released them from that church. And furthermore, God told him that a trap had been set, and they were going to accuse him of something that he hadn't done. And so then he went and told everybody that and left. And as someone who's been in church, on staff at a church, this church or another church for 25 years, like that just ticks me off because he made himself the victim in a situation where he had victimized a lot of people by saying, the Lord told me. Now, my whole point in that, and this is what I thought when I was listening to it, we want the Lord to tell us unique things more often. It's a good thing he doesn't, because it would be a mess um, if, the, to the extent that people aren't clear on that or take advantage of it, would be a complete mess. And we should thank God he has given us what we need, and he's chosen to do it in this way. M- make the commitment to read a little bit of your Bible every day. Study it together. Um, we've got some women right now that a couple weeks ago were like, hey, we went to the symposium on like studying the Bible, and we just want to study the Bible. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, let's figure out a way just to, and it's not Bible trivia, it's just because it's brilliant. And, we, and the more brilliant we realize it is, the more brilliant we realize God is, and the less we think about ourselves, and the more we think about him. Uh, be a boring Christian, read your Bible. Pray a lot. Pray more than you do. Um, If you struggle to pray, go to the Psalms in the Bible. They're like a catalog of your emotions and just start praying through some Psalms. 
because you'll find whatever you're going through in those Psalms, and you'll connect with God in that spot. Um, be the church. Be the boring church. Like, show up. Uh, show up consistently. Get in meaningful relationships with the people at your church. Give, serve, use your gifts in the church. Uh, those are the places where we connect with the Lord. And in the midst of that, like be ready to turn aside. Because uh, occasionally, I do think God does. He speaks to us. He impresses things upon us in different ways, like things that are a little bit unique to your situation. And be ready to turn aside. Um, but be prepared for most of the time just to steadily, uh, to steadily pursue the Lord. I'm going to ask you to, to close your eyes and bow your heads um, as I finish this morning. Um, I think my biggest prayer out of this morning is that um, to the extent, and, and God is concerned with the who are you question. Uh, I think we have a mental health crisis in our country in part because we're stuck on this who am I question, and God gets that. And God wants you in no uncertain terms to know who you are. And he's done that in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You are one that has been made by the God that created the universe he formed your inward parts when you were in your mother's womb. He knows the words that come out of your mouth before you speak them and your steps before you take them. He has the hairs on your head numbered. He knows uh, that sin has a hold on you and it is something that it is a problem you cannot fix yourself. And he sent Jesus to show you what life was meant to be like. He sent Jesus to die a death that Jesus didn't need to die and didn't deserve to die, that we did. And so he died that inner place. And he sent Jesus to rise from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit that we might know that we can be raised to new life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, and by what Christ has done for us. And he has redeemed us and called us into um, his work of redeeming his creation. That's who we are. That's what we need to know. That's what we remember with communion. It is settled. What we need to spend more time focusing on is who he is. And the brilliance of the one who has created us, the brilliance of the one who has redeemed us, the power of the one who loves us, the presence of the one who has said he will be with us and to be looking for the work that he is doing in our midst. Father, thanks for your word. Uh, thanks for your presence. Help us to be patient. Help us to be um, settled in who we are and to accept the things that you've told us, God, and help us to pursue you steadily. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.